This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Over the course of eight bloody months in the 1970s, a serial rapist and murderer terrorized Columbus, Georgia, killing seven elderly white women. In 1986, eight years after the last murder, an African-American, Carlton Gary, was convicted of the crimes and sentenced to death. Though many in the city doubt his guilt, Gary remains on death row. In his new book, The Big Eddie Club, The Stalking Stranglings and Southern Justice, our guest today, David Rose, looks at Gary's story and the history of racial injustice in small-town Georgia. Rose is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair who has worked for The Guardian, The Observer, and the BBC. He's the author of six books, including Guantanamo, The War on Human Rights. David Rose, welcome to Weekly Signals. Great to be here. Thanks uh, for having me. And Merry Christmas to you, too. Same to you. How, how are you doing today? What's it like there in England? Well, it's kind of just got dark, and uh, it's 4.30 in the afternoon, or just after, and it's damp and rainy and fairly cold, but not very cold, so it's typical Christmas weather. Well, that's, that's good. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about Columbus, Georgia. Let's, let's go across the ocean here. Uh, who lives there, and, and what's their relationship to uh, the death penalty? Well, Columbus is a city of about 200,000 people, just over 100 miles south of Atlanta, the state capital. And it's a very conservative city, quite an old place. It's uh, founded, I think, in 1828. It's a military town. There's a huge military base right next door to it, Fort Benning. And the interesting thing about Columbus, to me, is that it has a very kind of stable governing elite. The same families have been in charge of the economy, the politics, the administration of Columbus, well over 100 years, maybe going back before the Civil War even. And death penalty abolitionists often talk about the death penalty as being legal lynching. They talk about how some of the same kind of racist impulses that led to lynching in places like Columbus, and indeed very much in Columbus, are to be found today in the administration of the death penalty. Now, when they speak about that, normally they're talking in a kind of figurative sense that, um, that you know, there are, there are some of the same, as I say, impulses. You, you can draw these connections. But in Columbus, there are some very direct connections. The connections that bind the past and the present are unusually visible. And that's what drew me into the story and kept me coming back to the city again and again and again over a period of, of nine or ten years. Now, how did you first hear, hear about Carlton Gary's case? What was, what was, was that why you initially went to Columbus, or how did that come about? Well, actually, no. Um, the, the very first time I went to Columbus was in 1996. It was the time of the Olympics, and the reason I went there was that Georgia had just executed a British citizen, a uh, man called Nicholas Ingram. And I had already written a lot about criminal justice issues in the United Kingdom. Uh, so I went to, to write a story about the death penalty in Georgia at the time of the Olympics, and as soon as I got to Atlanta and spoke to various death penalty attorneys, they all said, well, if you want to know about the death penalty, go to Columbus. Because although in comparison with Atlanta, it's a far smaller city, about, I guess, a 40th or a 50th of the size in terms of population, Columbus had and, and still has sent many more people to death row than Atlanta or indeed anywhere else in the state. In fact, if you work it out per head of population, probably Columbus is about the most dangerous place in America to commit a murder, even more dangerous than Houston, Texas. 
So I went to Columbus, and I met some of the officials who were responsible for administering the death penalty, some of the prosecutors and the judges, and I was very struck by their almost passionate love affair with capital punishment. I'd never encountered anything like this before. Of course, we in England don't have the death penalty, haven't since 1965. But having begun to become intrigued by Columbus and this culture of capital punishment, I quickly found out about the stocking strangling story as well. Could, could you just uh, tell us a little bit about the stocking stranglings, what, what set it aside from the murders and, and why you think they uh, arrested Carlton Gary? Yeah, well, the, the stocking stranglings um, are probably the most egregious series of crimes in, in the history of, of Columbus, and indeed you know, some of the most horrifying crimes in the history of the South. In, a, in an eight-month period, as you said in your introduction, uh, 1977 to 8, uh, a man who the cops always believed was African-American murdered and raped seven white women. Uh, he also attacked another two victims who, in fact, survived his attack. Nobody was caught for many years, nearly six and a half years went by before anybody was arrested for these crimes. And there was a kind of reign of terror in Columbus. People were scared to go outside, especially women who lived alone. The victims were elderly, white, vulnerable people. Nobody knew how the killer worked out where they lived, that there were no people there to help protect them. And, and so there was this kind of terrible climate of fear. And then finally, Carlton Gary was arrested in 1984. Now, the story as to why the cops picked on him is, is very convoluted, um, and it, 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 it is probably too complicated to explain on the radio because it, in fact, makes no sense. But it comes <laughs> down to this, as the cop who claims to have solved the case once told me in an interview, he says they had, believe it or not, a phone call from God. He says that a man called him, gave him a clue, a lead, that put him on the trail in, in, in terms of, in fact, it was a very convoluted story about a gun that had been stolen and, in fact, had nothing to do with the killings. But it, 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 he says this is the reason he got onto Carlton Gary. But it all started, he said, because this man had Alzheimer's disease, had no idea why he'd called him, but he gave him this information. That's why he says it was a phone call from God. Of course, I don't believe this explanation for a single second. I don't actually believe God makes phone calls to <laughs> detectives in small-town Georgia very often, but that's what they say. Well, what was the substance of the call? What did he say that the Alzheimer's patient said? If specific, were there specifics or just sort of... Well, I'll, I'll tell you what it was. Um, <laughs> all these murders happened, except for one. All, all but one of these seven murders happened in a small neighborhood called Winton, an upscale white neighborhood. Right. Uh, an all-white neighborhood, of course, Columbus, like many cities in the South, being a fairly segregated place. At the same time as these murders were happening, uh, a man had his uh, car broken into and a gun was stolen from his car. Now, this, this had nothing whatsoever to do with these stocking-strangling murders. Nobody was killed in this crime. There were no elderly women involved. He, he was just a guy uh, who, who had his car broken into and his gun was stolen. Six and a half years go by, and it's, and it's March of 1984. He then calls, so the cops say, Detective Michael Sellers in the Columbus Police Department. He says, I have a message that you called to say you had found my gun. The story that Michael Sellers tells is that he then became intrigued as to why this guy might have called. He was intrigued about this gun because it was stolen in the same area as the murders around the same time. Mm. And he then tells a very long, complicated story about how he traces this gun to somewhere in Michigan and eventually to a relative of Carlton Gary, uh, who lived across the river in Alabama from Columbus. 
and then makes Carlton Gary the suspect because of his connection with the gun. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing about the Alzheimer's comes in like this. He says that um, you know everything fits together, and, and he, he, he makes Carlton Gary a suspect because of his connection with the gun. He says that he believes that Carlton Gary had actually stolen this gun. Indeed, he may well have done, although, as I say, it has nothing to do with the murders. Mm-hmm. But but the question is, why did the guy call? Why did the man who had his gun stolen, Henry Sanderson, who by this stage was living in Texas, why does he call the Columbus Police Department nearly seven years later and say, um, I understand you found my gun? Well, his story is that a couple of months after Carlton Gary's arrested and indicted, he calls Henry Sanderson, and he's out. He speaks to his wife, and he asks this question himself. He says, how come the guy called and said I'd left a message? Because nobody had left a message for him. And then his wife says, well, actually, uh, he just got it in his mind. He has Alzheimer's disease. And then the detective, you know, having told me this story, fixes me with a, with a blue-eyed glare, and he yeah. says, that's why I believe it was God calling. It was God saying, you have a chance to stop this, to stop him killing anybody else. It was God who put these words in his mind. And I said, so did the guy testify when it came to the trial? And he said, no, the sad thing is that by the time it came to Carlton Gary's trial, which was actually two years later, um, he was, as he put it, too gone to testify. So it's a beautiful story, but it's not true. And the reason I know it's not true is that, in fact, Henry Sanderson did testify at Carlton Gary's trial. He didn't say anything about having received messages from God, but he did describe how his gun had been stolen. He gave a very clear, accurate account. And in fact, in a couple of places where the district attorney slipped up over the details, he corrected him. I can tell you this man showed no signs whatsoever of having Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, his own mother, who by this stage was 90 years old, also testified. So, you know... It doesn't make sense. We're speaking with David Rose. The book is The Big Eddie Club, The Stalking Stranglings in Southern Justice. I want to uh, back up just a little bit because the name of the book is The Big Eddie Club. And you have alluded to the fact that the victims were women, white women in affluent areas. How does this relate to to the, the Big Eddie Club of Columbus? Georgia. Well, the, the Big Eddie Club is a very elite institution. It's um, indeed, you know, the, the people who run Columbus call themselves the elite. Everyone else calls them the elite. That's mm. how they're known in Columbus. And the elite club is the Big Eddie Club. And the reason it's called that is not because there was any guy called Big Eddie in some time past. He wasn't some sort of bouncer. He was. Like, the, the reason it's called that is that there's the Chattahoochee River, which is the border with Alabama, and there's a tributary that comes into the river. It separates the, the mainstream from, from the promontory where the Big Eddy Club sits, and there's an eddy in the water where the tributary comes in. That's why it's the Big Eddy Club. Now, five of the women who were murdered by this killer were either members of the Big Eddy Club or very frequent visitors. And so were the judge who tried the case. So was the chief of police. So was the district attorney. So was the federal judge who handled uh, some of Carlton Gary's appeals. If you look at the kind of white officialdom that, that prosecuted and tried this case, most of, the mem- most of them were members of the Big Eddie Club. So what you find is this elite white establishment where no African-American was allowed to enter other, to, other, other than as a servant, in fact, until the middle of 2006 when they did finally elect a, a black member. Um, you, have, you have this elite institution where the people who are trying the case actually knew the victims socially. Now, I'm not suggesting that the club itself has some kind of functional role in the story that deals were done behind closed doors inside the club, but, you know, it does symbolize that old white power in the Deep South and particularly in Columbus. And, and there are some other strains of uh, a, a racial 
uh, passed, a, a, the lynching. The Let's get into a little bit about that. The judge. Judge Land. Judge Land. Yes, well, and his father, or is it his grandfather? I'm sorry. Well, the, 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 as I said at, at the beginning, in fact, um, you know, one, of the, one of the extraordinary things about Columbus is you can see how these lineages work, how a racist climate today is linked to a racist climate 100 years ago, 150 years ago, at the time of the Civil War. And if there's one institution above all others that, that symbolizes this, it's the land family. Now, the lands are a very wealthy clan um, who have held many, I mean, they're, they're very rich. They've, they've had plantations, cotton plantations, and they've had farms, and they've had factories. They've had all kinds of, of wealth-generating enterprises for many, many years in Columbus. And they've also had a tradition of public service. Many of them have become councilmen, state senators, judges, and, and so forth. Now, in Columbus, like so many cities in the South, there is this dark history of lynching, and, and some of the most horrifying lynchings took place ar- around 1900, and two of them actually involved a member of the Land family. Aaron Brewsterland was um, uh, one of the, the richest members of the family, and he led two lynch mobs. The second was perhaps the most horrifying lynching in the history of Columbus. Um, a member of the Land family, Cleoland, a 14-year-old boy, went out into, out into the woods with a black kid who was the son of one of the family's servants. And they had a gun with them. They were going out hunting. There was a terrible accident, and the white boy, Cleoland, was killed quite clearly by accident. The, the black boy, T.Z. McElhaney, was put on trial. A jury in Columbus found him not guilty of murder, and no sooner had the verdict been pronounced than a mob led by Aaron Brewster Land seized the boy from the courthouse, dragged him out into the street, and in front of hundreds of witnesses shot him 44 times. He pleaded for mercy. I mean, the, the, the contemporary accounts are pitiful. Yeah. Aaron Brewster Land went on to have a son called John Land. John Land had a distinguished record in the Second World War. He had an Ivy League education, and he became a lawyer. And eventually, in 1956, he became the district attorney of Columbus. Now, in that year, uh, one of the most important figures in the early history of the civil rights movement, Dr. Thomas H. Brewer, was assassinated in Columbus in a department store, again in front of many witnesses. John Land, as district attorney, fixed the case. He rigged the grand jury so that they turned the man who killed Thomas H. Brewer loose on the completely crazy grounds that he had killed him in self-defense. I should say that in interviews with me, John Land has now admitted that this was a terrible miscarriage of justice, that he bitterly regrets it, and he just says, well, the truth is they would have lynched me if I had prosecuted this man for murder. He goes on to become the judge who handles the early stages of Carlton Gary's own case. Carlton Gary's arrested in 1984 following the phone call from God. (laughs) He's indicted for the stocking stranglings. And John Lamb then makes a series of decisions in his court that that effectively deprive Carlton Gary of any chance of a fair trial. He says that his defense will have no money, no funding at all. Because Carlton Gary didn't want the first lawyer, well, he didn't want to lead counsel, the court-appointed attorney that, that, that John Land had chosen. He wanted him only to be co-counsel. He wanted another more experienced death penalty lawyer to be lead counsel. John Land said, okay, you can have this guy as lead counsel, but you can't have the other guy as co-counsel. You can't have any money for investigation, for experts, for any kind of challenge to the state's evidence. It took two years for that case to come to trial, and the guy who, in fact, represented him in court, Bud Seaman, was almost bankrupt by the time the case came to trial. Now, the extraordinary thing is this, that Carlton Gary now is in the later stages of his appeals, and there's a whole heap of evidence, some of it I've dug up, 
which I believe makes a convincing case that if the jury had known the truth, if they had known some of the evidence that the state deliberately concealed about these cases, they would ne- the jury would never have found him guilty. And he was refused a new trial in May of this year. The name of the judge who refused him a new trial was Clay Land. He was the nephew of John Land. Now, Clay Land is a federal district judge, a Republican, appointed by George W. Bush. And, of course, he's a member of this clan that has been so powerful and so influential in Columbus, going back for, for so many decades. Well, now, do you think that the, uh, the evidence, uh, the dental records, is the uh, most damning piece of evidence against the, the uh, decision that's been made against Carlton Gary? Well, I, I think there are, there are two the extraordinary features to okay. this case. The first is, yes, that, that the state hid evidence that it knew about and that it knew was exculpatory and it deliberately concealed it. And, uh, and there's a whole bunch of stuff. It covers the fingerprint evidence that I think was completely worthless. It, it, it covers identification evidence. It covers various categories. But the most important thing, as you say, was, was this bite cast. The last victim to be murdered by the stocking strangler, had a deep bite wound on her breast, and it was very visible in the crime scene photos. In fact, uh, Bud Seaman, the defense attorney, even asked, of course, like in, like in every other case, he was unsuccessful, he asked for money so that they could compare the photo with Carlton Gary's teeth, and of course the judge refused. But all the time that this was happening, the district attorney, a man called Bill Smith, he knew that there was a cast made of the killer's teeth by a local dentist who had poured a, a dental substance called alginate into the wound and made a good cast of the killer's teeth. He knew it because he himself, with the cop who was in charge of the case, Ricky Boren, who is now, by the way, the chief of police in Columbus, Georgia, he had taken it to show an expert in, in Atlanta. And this expert said, yeah, that's a pretty good cast. If that matches your suspect, um, you have the right guy. But he went on, he said, I have to tell you that... This this cast shows that the killer has very strange teeth. He had a very wide gap, for example, between his two upper front teeth. One of those teeth was rotated, twisted, through about 40 degrees. Mm. His lower teeth were very crowded and jumbled. Now, Carlton Gary, he he was actually working as a TV commercial model at the very time of these murders. He had lovely teeth, beautiful, even white teeth. He still does. He's had no significant dental work done. His teeth don't match that bite cast. Now, there were many, many twists and turns along the way, yeah. but finally the bike car showed up two years ago. And earlier this year, in Clayland's court, Clayland of the famous Land family, um, held an evidentiary hearing in his court, and the same expert testified that the bike cast excluded Carlton Gary as the man who had bitten this woman to a standard beyond reasonable doubt. But Clayland said, okay, maybe the jury might have reached a different decision if they'd known about this bike cast. A bike cast that had been deliberately concealed by the state, but he still didn't give him a new trial. Wow. We're, well, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with David Rose. The, the book is The Big Eddie Club. And um, there's a, you, we've, you mentioned uh, one of the prosecuting attorneys. Uh, there's another one, uh, an assistant attorney general by the name of Susan, is it Bolin? Am I saying that correctly? I think it's Bolin, yeah, that's how you pronounce it, yeah. yeah. Like uh, Anne Bolin, the yeah. wife of Henry VIII. Right, <laughs> I was, yeah, was going to bring that up. Any relation I, there? Yeah, yeah. I wonder. <laughs> You know, and and um, you mentioned uh, that she was part. Of, I guess you're referring generally to this uh, sort of cadre of people in in Georgia, in Columbus, particularly as the Death Squad. I mean, so we they have a history here, right? Well, that's right. Susan Bolin, she she is the head of a department in the Georgia uh, Attorney General's office, right. which does nothing but but fight death penalty appeals for the state. 
and 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 death penalty defense lawyers call call that department the death squad. But I mean, she is a very very tough woman, and so. For example, I mean, one of the other big evidential things is that I managed to get a sample of Carlton Gary's semen. We couldn't do a DNA test because the state said that the original samples from the um, from the bodies had been destroyed because, believe it or not, they constitute a biohazard. But we were able to find the lab notes and show that Carlton Gary's semen is a different biochemical type to the wow. killers. Wow. And she came back. With a, with a brief that was quite successful, completely successful, uh, in Clayland's court, saying, okay, well, maybe that means that he didn't rape these victims. So, somebody else raped the victims, he still killed them. There's other evidence that shows that he killed them. Now, what she was actually doing was completely changing the story of these crimes yeah. after 25 years. Nobody had ever suggested that two people were involved in these crimes. She was now suggesting that maybe that's what happened, and the judge said, sure, okay, fine, perfectly, perfectly reasonable argument, no problem with that. Didn't give him a new trial. What, what you're describing, David Rose, is a situation where if you're a, a defense attorney, if you're a criminal defense attorney, and you're in the South, or you're anywhere, I mean anywhere where you, this kind of a, a case seems to be taking shape, the, the odds, the obstacles in front of you are pretty daunting, and, and as you're describing, uh, Carlton, uh, Carlton's attorney, just the idea of taking on this kind of a, of a case and knowing the financial burden that's going to place on you, I'm wondering how many attorneys are just not willing to take this on and how few there are to begin with, and then you see the obstacles in front of them, and you just you have to shake your well, head. Well, that, 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 that's, so, that's so true. Um, a friend of mine who is a death penalty attorney in the South said to me once, he said, you know, if you're a poor, and especially if you're an African-American defendant, Justice in the South isn't so much like a pair of scales that are evenly balanced. It's like a closing steel trap. Yeah. Once they've got your te- their teeth into you, it's extremely hard to fight your way out. And, yeah, I mean, not many people are prepared to do this. Partly, of course, it's because, you know, to go to law school costs money. Students uh, incur large loans if they're not from wealthy families. Most people can't afford to do this kind of work, and it's not well paid. But, you know, earlier this year, no, last year, Georgia finally, for the very first time, got a proper public defender system going. This was a big departure for Georgia. What happened in the first year, it ran out of money. And for several months of last year, there was no money at all to pay the attorneys in Georgia's public defender system. That's, That's how broken the system is there. It's completely unjust. But, you know, I was once interviewing the attorney general of Georgia, um, not not the current uh, attorney general, but one of his predecessors. And I said to him, you know, in Europe, we have this idea, it's a, it's a very strong idea in European justice, British justice, and, and in the rest of Europe, called equality of arms, that for a trial to be fair, there has to be equality of arms between the prosecution and the defense. And he just roared with laughter, and he said, equality of arms? You've got to be kidding. <laughs> if we had equality of arms, we'd never convict half of these critters. And I think that said a lot. Yes, absolutely. Well, let me ask you one more question in general. Uh, England has uh, abolished the death penalty since 1965. What do you think of our death penalty here? What's what's your general impression? And what are those who live in England? What's the impression of of the way we treat uh, our our criminals and, and the penalty in general? 
Well, you know, when, when the death penalty was abolished in England, it was a very controversial thing at the time, uh, and, and it remained controversial for a good many years. But gradually, as time has gone on, it's completely ceased to be controversial. People accept that life without parole is the maximum penalty, and it's a very tough penalty. Our maximum security jails are no more comfortable than yours. And, you know, if you commit some egregious, horrible crime or terrorist act or whatever, you are never going to get out of prison. And, and that's a pretty grim fate. I think many people in Britain, I can't say that everyone in Britain, but a lot of people in Britain look at the United States. They look at the fact that still there is this death penalty, although, of course, the Supreme Court, for the time being at least, has imposed a kind of moratorium whether, while it decides whether or not lethal injection is cruel and unusual. But people look at it, and they look at it with horror. They see people staying on death row for 10, 20, even 30 years, and sometimes being exonerated after all that time because of a DNA test or because some other guy shows up and makes a confession. Um, there was a play called The Exonerated that you may have seen. It, I think it's, it's certainly been in California. It was very big in London about the stories of people who'd been freed from death row. And I remember going to the opening night and looking at the story of Sonny Jacobs, who was a woman who was convicted and sentenced to death for a crime that she had nothing to do with, along with her boyfriend, Jesse Tafiro, in Florida. And Jesse Tafiro was executed, and, and she... Um, she was finally exonerated four years after his execution. She now lives in Ireland. And then on that opening night, she played herself in this play. And, and, and they didn't tell the audience until right at the end. And then they sort of said, and we're very pleased to say that playing Sonny Jacobs today is Sonny Jacobs. And the emotional power of seeing this woman who had managed to sustain a two-and-a-half-hour drama, who had been through this in real life. I mean, you know, everyone in that audience was weeping, and, yes. and I think that expresses a lot about how we feel about the death penalty. Well, very good. David Rose, the book is The Big Eddie Club, and I want to thank you once again for uh, spending a little bit of your Christmas with us here at Weekly Signals. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Happy Christmas to all of you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.